So friends, we begin a new worship series this week. This one's going to run through the end of October. Um, this is a, a title, um, a worship series entitled Forever Pieces. And so as Mary told our children earlier, we'll be spending the next seven weeks moving through the different uh, pieces of furniture and elements of this worship space that help to, to shape how we understand worship and help how we understand our relationship to God and to one another. This series actually grows from a piece of motherly advice that I received in my late 20s. Y'all know my mom passed away when I was in my early teenage years, and so I've been blessed with a number of folks who have served as motherly figures. And I was blessed with one there at the end of my 20s as well as the... I spent most of that decade doing graduate school, completing two different graduate degrees, and I was 29 when I received my first call to pastoral ministry. That was also the first time I had a chance to to make a house, or an apartment in this case, my home. So I moved into this nice little apartment in the Five Points neighborhood of Athens, Georgia, and it it was quaint, but it had great energy to it, and I was excited to furnish it so that I could host, I imagined, all these dinner parties uh, for my friends and for my new congregants in the 600 square feet that I had there. I was sharing my hopes with this woman who serves for me as a motherly figure when she stopped me and she offered a bit of wisdom. She said, if I could just offer you a little advice, don't, don't rush to fill this new place of yours. I know that you need certain pieces of furniture right now. But to the extent possible, take your time and save your money and try, if you can, to purchase pieces that you can keep forever. For a guy in my late 20s, I thought forever is a really long time. But she said, buy pieces with integrity. Buy pieces that can withstand the changing of trends and styles. Fill your home with timeless pieces made with good bones that that can take on new fabric or a new finish, but will never need replacing. To the extent that I could, I took her advice and I'm grateful for it. Sage advice, it turns out, for our homes is also sage advice for our worship. For Christians in the Reformed tradition, uh, we recognize the importance of the space in which we worship. For as ornate and grand as this sanctuary is, and it is that, it is furnished, if you pay attention, rather sparsely. Thoughtfully so. So over the next seven weeks, we will examine the furnishings that we do have here and the elements that will forever be a part of our sacred space. We will reflect on what these forever pieces communicate about how we understand God and ourselves. Winston Churchill once observed, we shape our buildings. Thereafter, they shape us. So how are we being shaped by this place? and the forever pieces that fill it. We'll begin this week by examining the baptismal font using a text from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I invite you to join me in the hearing of God's word. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. So on a quiet street near Stanford University stands a 12 by 18 garage on the National Registry of Historic Places. The story goes that in this humble workplace, college buddies Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard first pursued their dream of developing a company of their own. An HP publication notes that guided by an unwavering desire to develop innovative and useful products, the two men went on to blaze a trail at the forefront of the electronics revolution. Today, the garage where they began their work stands as an enduring symbol of innovation and the entrepreneurial spirit. The garage, it turns out, is an icon of Silicon Valley. From HP to Apple to Google, garages have a sort of lure, uh, a mythological power all their own. When the stories of the tech revolution are told, they, they are gritty. It is the ingenuity of hardscrabble inventors who are bent on creating something brand new that is lauded in these stories. Inconvenient details, of course, are left out of these stories. As Mike Cosper of Christianity Today points out, when Google set up shop in a garage in Menlo Park, the company was already two years old, and it had millions of dollars in startup funds to play with. Steve Wozniak, uh, co-founder of Apple, he has called their founding story in a garage mostly untrue, noting that all of the design and the building of the first Apple computer happened somewhere else. Even the HP garage needs an asterisk, because while Hewlett Packard did build their first device in that garage, the design and the prototyping all happened in nearby labs, including one at Stanford. The founder's myth develops and persists because it resonates with us. Garages become lauded in Silicon Valley because there is something about what it looks like to see a couple people go into a garage with nothing but an idea and some time on their hands and come out with this wonderful, powerful device that will lead to a, a powerful company. We love scrappy, gritty heroes who through hard work and bold persistence will their ideas into existence. Understanding the founder's myth, though, is important because it shapes how we view the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus could have begun his public ministry however he wished. He could have set himself up in a, as a scrappy hero bent on establishing the kingdom of God through his own will and work, but that is not what Jesus does. Scripture tells us that Jesus makes his way from Nazareth in Galilee to the Jordan River. And there he is baptized by John. Jesus begins his story. And the author of the Gospel of Mark tells us clearly, Jesus begins with a long, dusty 
walk from his home to the Jordan River. He begins in baptism. That is to say, he begins by yielding to the ministry of another. In this case, John. He begins with the symbolism of the water, descent and death, and then rising and new life. And in so doing, Jesus evaporates the myth, the myth that could be written about him and the ministry that is going to follow, myths that could be written about the, the healings that people will witness, the miracles that they will see, the multiplication of fish and bread, the healing of people. Jesus reveals important and eternal truths when he decides that for him, baptism is the beginning of the journey. First, he teaches that his life and his ministry are not born of his own power, but of the very power of God. Jesus, as he goes down into the water, as he descends into the waters of the Jordan, he dies to the myth of self-sufficiency and rises to the provision of the divine. For those who witness the sky torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove, there will be no confusion about what is to follow. The very power of God has been inaugurated and will sustain the ministry of this one that we call Jesus. The second thing that happens in Jesus beginning his story in this way is that in his own baptism, Jesus reveals a universal pattern of existence. Living and dying and rising. If you were here for Easter, maybe you remember that three phrase, universal pattern. It turns out that even as he begins his ministry, and even as it looks like he's just coming up to his cousin, who's a weird guy, camel hair, eating locusts and honey, Right? Even as he yields and is, is placed into the water and then rises back up, what is happening in that time is Jesus is revealing a bigger pattern. One at work in every dimension of our world and our lives. Living and then dying and then rising. It's a pattern that inaugurates Jesus' ministry. It's a pattern that we will read about at the end of the Gospel of Mark as well. Living and dying and rising. This is the eternal pattern of the divine in the world. Symbolically, the baptismal font still, for us, makes this claim. That as people of faith, this is the pattern imprinted on all creation, living, dying, and rising. We, see, we will see this pattern in Jesus' ministry and by the cross and by the empty tomb. We will see this pattern in every bit of all creation. You will see it in your lives and in your relationships. You will see it in your work. You will see it in your faith even, living and dying and rising. Jesus exposes the myth because here's the thing. There's a great temptation to ignore this pattern. There is a great temptation to ignore the truth. So much of our life here is designed to thwart death, to ignore its reality, and therefore to skip resurrection. But Jesus places it up front in his ministry, and so do we in this worship space by where we place our baptismal font. This beautiful stone and metal that houses a humble bowl, and on a few Sundays a month, gets to hear perhaps a, a very peaceful baby or perhaps a, a baby that is disturbed from slumber by a mean pastor 
this, this place that gets to see new life that has just come into the world, that through this simple symbol of, of water claims that something can happen. It claims that for us and within us, within our lives, within our work, we are grounded solely. We begin our story solely, not by our own power, but by the power of God. It's hard for us to remember that because so much of our lives is about self-preservation. And yet Jesus begins his ministry by dying to his own self-sufficiency and rising to the very power of God. There are implications for this. There are implications for why the baptismal font is here and placed where it is in this sanctuary. You know, our church has had a couple other locations before we ended up here at 1750 Union. But in each of those places, there has been a font, not too dissimilar to this one. It's been a place where babies have come forward, where, where folks even more mature have come to a new life in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we forget that sometimes. I wonder if we forget the power that we witness when we gather around the font together. Shane Claiborne rightly observes that it is dangerous for the church to forget the power of the baptismal font and what it carries with us. He says, perhaps there is no more dangerous place for a Christian to be than in safety and comfort detached from the suffering and death of the world. It is easy for us to be detached in this place even from the suffering and death of the world. And if we are detached from that suffering and death, then we must and we cannot fully comprehend the power of God at work in resurrection, in new life, living, dying, and then the power of God in rising. There is a cost. There is a cost to this way of moving through the world. Lest we forget from whence our faith has come, it comes from a, a young rabbi who takes a dusty walk to the bank of a river, meets a crazy-looking guy, goes down into the water and lets everyone know that everything that's about to happen, everything that I will take on, Jesus says, I'm going to do this by the very power of God at work within me. And there is a cost. This is the preamble, of course, that ties to the end of the story, and we know what the cost is, and we know what that looks like. But there is also a cost when we decide that we are bold enough to come before these waters, or we, as we are asked to do every time we celebrate a baptism, we remember our own baptisms. There is a cost to that discipleship. There is a dying that must happen, so a rising can happen. Living and dying and rising Sometimes there are small deaths that we have to take in our personal lives. And sometimes there are bigger things that must go down into the water so they can be raised to new life. Will Willimon is the former dean of the chapel at Duke University. He got a, a call one afternoon from a very upset parent. The voice on the other end of the line said, I hold you personally responsible for this. That was how the call opened. Willimon said, me? His father on the other end of the line was hot, upset because his graduate school-bound daughter had just informed him that she was going to throw it all away, according to him, 
and go and do mission work with Presbyterians in Haiti. Isn't that absurd? Shouted the father through the phone. She's got a BS degree in mechanical engineering from Duke. And she's going to go dig ditches in Haiti. Willemont took a breath. Well, I doubt that she's received much training in the engineering department here for that kind of work, but um, she's probably a fast learner and will probably get the hang of digging ditches in a few months, I'm sure. This is not laughing matter, the father said. You're completely irresponsible. You've encouraged her to do this. I know you have. She told me that you had. I hold you personally responsible for this. As the conversation went on, Dr. Willimon pointed out to the well-meaning but obviously unprepared parents that they were the ones who started this ball rolling. They were the ones that brought their daughter to the baptismal font. They were the ones that made promises to read scripture to her and pray with her. They were the ones that took her to Sunday school. They were the ones that let her go to Presbyterian Youth Fellowship to ski trips and youth group activities. You're the ones, he said, who introduced her to Jesus, not me. There was silence on the other end of the line and, and then the father said, but all, all we wanted her to be was a Presbyterian. <laughs> That's not what happens here. What happens here is we claim together that the universal pattern of life is living and dying and rising. We claim together that the power that is at work within each of us and also in our church is not our own. Like Jesus, we lay aside this myth that we can persist in this world on our own ingenuity and intelligence and energy. We lay aside the myth that we can will the world to be different than it is. And we claim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That at work in the world is a power beyond any power that we can have. At work even within us by the very power of the Holy Spirit is the divine power of God. We expose once and for all in these waters, in a humble bowl and normal water, that we pulled from the tap just an hour ago. We claim that through this font, new life can be born. We trust it and we believe it to be true. And then we live as people who know the power of God at work in their lives and in the world. This font must continue to be a forever piece of this place. Because within its waters, within its stone and its metal, the mystery of God lives. And each time we run our hand through it, which I invite you to do this day as you leave worship, each time we run our hands through that water, each time we remember our own baptisms, we claim that that power is still at work and shall be for all eternity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.